Today's episode is sponsored by the American Chemistry Council. Chemistry creates, America competes. Whether you like it or not, the U.S. is in a power competition with China. So the state of the competition is really military, economic, and technological. That's Alex Ward, a national security reporter here at Politico who authors our National Security Daily newsletter. The military side, you have China developing its military forces at breakneck speed, including nuclear modernization. The United States says China's buildup of nuclear forces is concerning. Economically, China is you know, the second largest global economy. It is starting to build relationships with other nations and, and lead in certain key technologies of the future. UN figures show China was the largest recipient of new foreign direct investment in 2020, overtaking the US for the first time. And technologically speaking, and I sort of alluded to, you know, which country will actually dominate the technologies that will most matter in the future, quantum computing, artificial intelligence. For years, the two largest economies worked hand in hand in an effort to make technological advances. But now, as the relationship between the U.S. and China sours, China is working to lay a foundation to become the global leader in new technologies. And right now, the, it's widely believed that China sort of has the lead and is not going to give it up. And President Joe Biden is really trying to play catch up here. I'm Jeremy Siegel. This is Politico Dispatch. And today, Alex Ward on the power competition that is reshaping U.S. foreign policy. Last time you and I spoke was literally the day the Taliban took over Kabul as, as U.S. forces were completing their withdrawal from Afghanistan. How would you say we've seen the Biden administration's foreign policy shift since then? Like, was that moment kind of a, a turning point, like a very chaotic, obviously destructive at times turning point when the administration began sort of a true pivot towards China? I would actually call the turning point more the decision that Biden made back in April to withdraw from Afghanistan more than the withdrawal itself. The withdrawal was a, a chaotic execution of that policy. But by deciding to withdraw from Afghanistan, Biden effectively said, we're turning the page on 20 years of war. And one could even argue that it really wasn't about China. It was just about there was no reason for the U.S. to continue fighting in a war it couldn't win and that it proved it couldn't win after two decades. But it will free up a lot of resources, military and economic resources, to compete with China down the line. And so that's very clearly part of the calculation as well. Right. Is if the U.S. is no longer bogged down in a major war um, in Afghanistan, then it can free up to think about bigger things like China. Uh, so I wouldn't, again, call it a turning point. I would just say it was a sort of a, a, the, the, the greatest manifestation of this new policy that Biden is pursuing. Mm. Have we seen sort of like a marked shift towards China at all from from the Biden administration? I think there's no question. I mean, let's just look at three instances of what's already happened. You had the administration bring together a, a, a massive, you know, a grouping of nations to agree to climate commitments. China did agree to certain climate commitments, including um, saying it will stop, you know, uh, having coal plants outside of China. Now, that's not enough, but it's a lot um, to get China to commit to that. And really, the administration would say they only got that commitment through the discussions with China and through bringing a bunch of countries together. Mm -hmm. You could also look at the quad grouping of the U.S., India, Australia, and Japan, in which, you know, those nations say that grouping is not about China, but of course it is. 
Um, and it's really about finding ways for those nations to work together on economics, technology, and other areas, and sort of form a unit that balances against China. And then you can also look at the uh, clumsily named AUKUS deal, which is just abbreviations of Australia, US, and UK, in which Washington and London decided to give nuclear submarine technology to Australia. And that technology will allow Australians' military to effectively sail their subs kind of indefinitely on nuclear power. Um, They won't have nuclear weapons, uh, but they will have nuclear power propulsion. And so that's also about China, right? This would provide uh, an American ally the capability to counter China militarily if and when a fight were to break out. Uh, So, like, just look at those three things, and there are others, but it's clear that, you know, almost everything that the Biden administration is doing does have a China angle to it. Uh, But some critics would say, you know, if everything is about China, then nothing is really about China. So this is something the administration has to walk. You know, are they being strategic about their decisions or are they just kind of throwing, you know, everything at the wall and hoping that it somehow sticks in the China competition? So you just yesterday gathered a group of officials and lawmakers for a panel discussion of the power competition between the U.S. and China. You mentioned that there's sort of three, um, like, pieces to this, um, the economic, technological, and and military competition. Um, Who did you talk to, and and what did you learn about sort of these facets of the competition from them? So I talked to Senator Tom Tillis, a Republican from North Carolina who's on the Senate Armed Services Committee. This is a potential flashpoint uh, for a rise in tensions between China and the United States. Representative Ami Barra, who's uh, the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and he chairs the subcommittee on Asia. We ought to be a strong America in a bipartisan way. And then also Dr. Anna Pugliese of Georgetown, who's a specialist in the technological competition between the U.S. and China. China really does view economic security as national security. And so looking at all the different threads that we see being pulled in that area, um, it's really important to remember that. Uh, On the military front, I mean, we learned that there is just great concern in Congress about China's modernization efforts. They are worried that, you know, the Pentagon is keeping them in the dark on certain deployments. In fact, there was a Wall Street Journal report on Thursday, hours before the panel, that said the U.S. had a dozen or so trainers in Taiwan helping out Taiwanese forces. Both Tillis and Barra said they were not made aware of that deployment uh, by the Pentagon. Were you aware of this as a a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee? Did the Pentagon make you aware of this deployment? Um, they did not make us specifically aware where we only have the information, Alex, that you have through public reports. So there was concern about that. On the economic front, they both seem to indicate that they are concerned the U.S. doesn't really have the multilateral economic cachet to compete with China. They both decried the fact that the U.S. was not in the now defunct Trans-Pacific Partnership, um, TPP, uh, free trade deal. And Barrett even committed to, to push forward an effort to you know revive that agreement. Hmm. And then on the technology front, you had Pugliese basically say, look, China has an advantage here. You know, they can do long term planning because it is a centralized autocracy. Well, I think the thing that really gives them an advantage in, in a lot of ways is they do play the long game. You know, these are not just plans and policies. There's a lot of follow through. They can invest in the industries that they want and really boost them. And so it's unfair competition with the rest of the world. Both Tillis and Barra you know, agreed that, you know, partisan squabbling at home um, should end at the water's edge, that the U.S. should be able to provide the kinds of 
uh, incentives and investments in the technologies to compete with China. But of course, we just came out of a, a period where they had trouble deciding over raising the debt ceiling. So, you know, can Congress really provide the right policy incentives and the right funding um, for the industries that it would like in a more not centralized, but a more controlled, you know, sort of export policy and industrial policy uh, that remains unclear. So I left the conversation thinking, man, China sort of at the 30,000 foot level really has the advantage right now. I want to talk about why this matters for everyday people, not officials who are dealing with it every day, but just everyday people. Like, is this something that we should even be thinking about in terms of, of competition or whether we're winning or losing or, or that we should care about in that sense? I, the administration would like us to. You know, they call the Pentagon calls it strategic competition. Uh, others in the administration would say they're seeking responsible competition, but it is a competition. And it's it's a fight for sort of at the 50,000 foot level, you know, whether an autocracy can really supplant a democracy in the world, you know, which system of government best serves its people and and the globe. Sort of deeper down, it's about you know, which country is going to lead the rules of the road in certain industries? You know, will the U.S. still be the dominant military power? That's a big question. If Chinese industries really are the dominant forces in areas like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, telecommunications, do they effectively get to run the global norms as to how those industries operate? Um, and on trade, you know, who's going to have the, the most friends, let's say? Who's going to have the greatest insights into the right industries? And who's going to provide the right jobs for people um, in the industries that will most matter. You know, all of these things, it's not zero sum, right? In the sense that if the U.S. advances in one in one industry, China becomes worse. They could cooperate together, let's say, in a sort of competitive way, a cooperative com competition, let's call it. But uh, it is clear that both countries do want to be sort of the leaders in all of these areas, and that leads to tense uh, relations between them. Alex Ward, thanks so much for talking with me. No, thanks for having me. Also, today, a majority of Americans now support requiring public school students age 12 or older to be vaccinated against coronavirus before they can attend classes in person. That's according to a new survey from Politico and Harvard. Nearly three in four Democrats favor a vaccine mandate for the students, while 59% of Republicans are opposed. Just over half of self-described independents are also against the mandates. That foretells sharp divisions across the country this fall and winter as local school districts weigh vaccine requirements. And the Senate has confirmed three of President Biden's nominees for top positions in the Education Department. The appointments were approved by voice vote on Wednesday. Gwen Graham will become Assistant Secretary for Legislation and Congressional Affairs. Roberto J. Rodriguez will serve as the Assistant Secretary for Planning, Evaluation, and Policy Development. And Elizabeth Merrill Brown will be the department's next general counsel. All of the nominees have deep roots in public schools and public service. The Politico Dispatch production team includes senior editor Raghu Manavalan, senior producer Jenny Ament, and executive producer Irene Noguchi. Just a heads up, we are going to be away on Monday, but we'll be back on Tuesday with a new episode. I'm Jeremy Siegel. Thanks for listening.